Welcome everyone to the Take It Home Podcast. I'm your host, John LaRocca, and on today's episode, we're going back, back in time to 1994, April 17th of 1994, and I'm going to be reviewing World Championship Wrestling Spring Stampede Pay-Per-View. This took place at the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago, Illinois, and this was the very first ever Spring Stampede Pay-Per-View. Um, they would take a couple years off. No Spring Stampede pay-per-view in 1995 or 96, but it would come back in 1997 in a very good pay-per-view as well. Um, that that sh- that show featured uh, Randy Savage versus Dallas Page in a very wild uh, main event. And this another Spring Stampede the year after, the following year, excuse me, 1998, a really, really good pay-per-view as well. I, I want, definitely want to go back and rewatch that one. I watched a little 97 because that's the one I didn't really remember too much. And it was uh, a very strong pay-per-view, um, especially with the opener with Rey Mysterio versus Ultimo Dragon. Uh, they had a really good opening match. Um, it's just great psychology. You know, you think those two guys, you think that with high-flying, but they really told a wonderful story, built to the big spots. Um, and then the main event, like I said, Randy Savage, DDP, that was a pretty good feud in 1997, and that match is, was, is wild and crazy and, and really, really awesome. But we're here to talk about 1994, Spring Stampede, and, you know, for me, I, I've i always loved WCW. I was more of a WCW guy than a WWF guy, though I, you know, I watched everything, um, but I was... Because I knew WCW or the NWA at the time when I started watching was, quote unquote, the underdog. Because um, you know everyone else knew WWF from Hulk Hogan and all that. You know, so but WCW for me had the better wrestling. Though I did enjoy the WWF style, um, so I always like was rooting for WCW success. And you know, growing up, the the wrestler that I really captured my attention that I said that's my favorite wrestler was you know total package Lex Luger and I talked about that many times and some people may laugh about that but you know I just was hooked I you know um you know there was Hulk Hogan who I saw who was this giant of a man and ball charisma Lex Luger to me looked like just a superhero right he just like chills out of granite and um and I just really enjoyed his work and I also I felt he's very underrated and underappreciated. Um, and I always say, like, look at Lex Luger in 1989. That's what really hooked me on him. It was 1989 Lex Luger. That heel run was tremendous. And it's unfortunately unfortunate that Sting got hurt and he's the one they flipped back babyface. Uh, Luger's like, you know, that was their go-to instead of kind of like looking at an alternative and just kind of leaving Lex where he at as like a top future heel of that company. So, you know, I was always at WSW, and from then on, it was just like I seen the ups and downs. 89, especially the, the second half of 89, um, tremendous. And then early part of 90, things started dipping a bit, and then when Ole Anderson took over the book after Ric Flair quit as the head booker of WSW in 1990, when Ole Anderson took over, it it took another dip. And, he, you know, especially towards the the – the end of the year of 90 and it was like the you started hiring a lot of younger cheaper slower bigger talent because 
I never forget one of his interviews. I think it might, it might have been a shoot interview that he did. He's he was still like if he grabbed your wrist and his, you know, only answer grab a guy's wrist and if his thumbs and his index feet, thumb and his index finger touched, that means you know he's not going to push you or something. It was ridiculous. Like he looked for the big guys, Motor City Madman, who was just a big guy, Night Stalker, green but big, uh, the Big Cat, uh, Curtis Hughes. Big guy, but I liked him. I like, always liked Curtis Hughes, and of course, I, I really enjoyed his stuff as Mr. Hughes in 1991. Um, I always thought he was very, very talented. Um, so, but, you know, various different guys like that. Just cheap, green talent that he could, you know, that he didn't cost that much money. And and it really suffered the Black Scorpion angle. It was, was, a, was a flop. J.D. Oliva, um, a good friend of the Bracelet Impact a podcast, did a great article a two-part article on the Black Scorpion angle and who could have been the Black Scorpion instead of Frick Flair. And I, like me, and I'm glad a lot of other people thought this too, um, Eddie Gilbert was, in my opinion, should have been the guy for that spot. Just made complete sense for everything. The history of Sting and with the coming up and the Mid-South area and all that just made perfect, perfect sense. But so then cut to 1991, here comes Dusty Rhodes, you know, he... He quits WWF to go back to WCW. They don't want him as a wrestler, but they but they'll take him as a booker. And he starts taking what he saw from working for Vince um, from uh, eighty nine to uh, early ninety one, and he's so he starts kind of making WCW WWF light at the time. So you saw a lot more, you know, brighter like the the buildings got brighter, which I liked. Um, the the um, the gimmicks got more colorful. This is when we got Johnny B. Bad, uh, PN News, uh, the Young Pistol. Sorry, Chase, the Southern Boys, which were a really good tag team, became the Young Pistols from Miami because they were too Southern as a Southern Boys. Um, uh, the Freebirds added a masked Brad Armstrong, which as Bad Street, which I did like, but they had Diamond Dallas Page as their manager and Sir Alvarez and it was just you know, there's black blood and a lot of goofiness that 1991 brought but in the end of 91 like with the signing of rick rude and rick steamboat the dangerous alliance angle like things start really started picking up big time um and then 92 bill watts came in and it was very heavily celebrated at first but then you know, he made some questionable changes. Um, you know, obviously one of the most popular ones that people always talk about is the banning of the top rope. Um, he made some changes within the uh, company that the, the boys were upset with, like couldn't leave the building until after all the matches ended, etc. He would find people. He was just trying to create some structure, and he's working on a budget. He's kind of met, you know, taking people's contracts and wants, wants to redo them, like you know, famously Brian Pillman, which always shocked me because I figured Brian Pillman was a guy that he would just love on his roster, or, but you know, he, he didn't see the the value of Brian Pillman for what they were paying him at the time. So, and then of course, as things kind of dipped in the summer of 1992, though I did enjoy it. Um, you know, he just got too focused on the NWA stuff. Now, that was old. That was yesteryear. Just focus on WCW, like a whole great American bash pay-per-view 1992. You had this whole NWA world tag team title tournament. That was just a waste of time. Um, but things started picking up again. Um, after October and 
I thought Starcade was a really tremendous event. And then in early 93, he started he shot an angle with Jim Cornette, the Heavenly Bodies, Rock and Roll Express. They're starting to get that working agreement going with Smoky Mountain Wrestling. So that was going to infuse some brand new talent and some good talent. It seems to be like he's finally, you know, it, you know, Will Watts, a little rusty coming back to promoting and booking from you know last run in 19 what early 1997 so you know 92 he was just getting his feet wet back again and figuring out what works what didn't work and i think he was really starting to hit a stride in early 93 at least that's what i felt and of course there was an issue with comments he said in an interview and he got fired and was once again replaced by I believe Dusty, then Oli, and then when Oli got it again, I mean Oli at the time again he went back to the cheap, cheap, uh, younger talent, um, the uh, the Jungle Jim Steels though he ended up being a, a pretty solid worker in All Japan as Wilkes Hawksfield, Big Sky who uh, would famously go on to become Sabretooth in the first ever X Men film, and also he played Michael Myers in the the Rob Zombie zombie abortion Halloween films. Um, but, you know, it just was kind of back to that kind of slower pace, um, a lot of lumbering young guys. and and But they had some talent there in 93. And again, at the end of 93, you know, it's a really high, a great feeling. Ric Flair captures the world title from WCW. I'm uh, sorry, from Vader. The WCW from Vader, excuse me. And, and, you know, it just was a, one of those great wrestling moments. So you're you're feeling momentum going 94. And in 94, Ric Flair took over the booking. And Ric Flair was a booker in 89, right after George Scott came in and just, just totally bombed and way at way just, you know, he's a great booker in the past, but time flew by, passed him by. And so Ric Flair took, Took it over. Ric Flair, as a booker, is very underrated. I don't think a lot of people talk about, you know, they talk about Ric Flair, the great world champion, the great matches he had, the great promos. But as a booker, I thought he was pretty good. Ric Flair wasn't a details booker. He wasn't Roy Shire. He was a guy that saw the the overall vision really well. And, when, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about WCW, WCW would book by committee. And, of course, there's been some positives and negatives with that, but with when Ric Flair is the head booker and he has a committee of people he trusts under him, I think that's where the committee works. Uh, in '89, he had uh, Kevin Sullivan, Jim Cornette, um, Eddie Gilbert for a time, though they they Flair and him and Eddie Gilbert butted heads, which was unfortunate, and um, they had their issues. But you know, with Cornette and Sullivan and you know Ric Flair. Going over to TVs, booking those angles in the summer of '89, like things were cooking. Um, and here he is back again, uh, 1994, as the head booker. Of course, he at this time, the executive vice president was Eric Bischoff, who started getting his foothold as the executive vice president in 1993. Uh, but this is where you know Flair and Bischoff. They of course they've had issues in the past. Uh, issues before, I mean, later on, of course, famously. and But here they got along great. It seemed like they worked really well together. Um, it seemed that he, 
you know, Rick Flair, you know, of course he didn't have a Jim Cornette, but he had Kevin Sullivan coming back um, as uh, a details guy for him to carry out the vision. I think Terry Taylor is there, and I think he's doing some mess. He's doing matches, and also I think he's also in the office as well. And you know, Terry Taylor, um, I thought Taylor and Sullivan were you know good bookers in '96, '97, and of course you know things got kind of crazy on them in WCW, but. You know, he had some good people under him to kind of help him flush out the finer details of his uh, of his booking. So, I, and then Rick, so I, so Rick Flair, like a lot of people don't even remember that. You know, Rick Flair was pushing for Hogan to come in and do business with, and you know, a lot of people think you know Hogan he did come in and it did take over, but you know, Rick Flair was the catalyst to to get him in there. Of course, Bischoff wanted him as well. So that brings me to uh, so so ninety four altogether, from January, and a lot of people think ninety four took a dip when Hogan showed up. I disagree. I enjoyed you know the Bash of the Beach pay per view where Hogan won the title from Flair. I enjoyed the Class Champions in August and Fall Brawl was good minus one match and that just I hate to this day. I just just hurt. It, I'll talk about the later when I talk about Steve Austin's match um, on this card. But I thought Fall Brawl overall was a good show. And then Halloween Havoc 94 was a good show. And right that's when things became Hogan and Friends. And you had Bruce Beefcake turning heel. You had uh, Earthquake coming in as Avalanche. And though I like Earthquake as a worker, it's just, it was just recycling old stuff. So, but. 94, like I said, for the first 10 months, I thought was really good. Um, especially those first six months where it felt like WCW once again had their own identity over the WWF. Um, uh, the influence from Kevin Sullivan doing, working for, you know, the ECW, bringing that quote unquote hardcore style. Um, to WCW and helped help kind of bring some new excitement to WCW at the time. Um, so it was things are starting to really cook in '94. And when Hogan came again, just like kind of when Dusty Rose came in '91, uh, things got brighter. The arenas got brighter. Um, the production got better. That was a positive. Um, and Business got better at Hogan's there. You know, I can't complain what Hogan did for WCW, uh, though, you know, the end last, <laughs> the last two months of 94 were just, as a fan of the product, was brutal watch. And it rolled over to most of 1995. And then finally, you know, with the Nitro starting September, things started changing and the influx of younger talent, faster, quicker talent really, you know, add some excitement to the show. Um, but Springspan P94, in my opinion, is probably, it has to be in the top five WCW pay-per-views. Um, rewatching this, I thought, man, this might be the best for match-wise, you know, from top to bottom, uh, you know, a, one of the best in-ring pay-per-views. My favorite pay-per-view for WCW slash NWA was Great American Bash, 89 glory days to me that's like i just love that show i can watch it anytime um 
I actually don't even need to watch it. I kind of have everything memorized in my head, all the spots. I just know it all, like, of that show because I watched it so many, so much. Um, and, but this 1994 Stream Stampede is up there with, for me, with Grand American Bash 89. Um, the buy rate was a 0.53, um, a little better what they've been doing. Um, so, you know, there's so many in there. The attendance was 12,200. I don't know what, what the, I didn't get a chance to, to see what was comped and what was official paid, but that's a, the crowd looked beautiful on pay-per-view. Like, Rosemont Horizon looked fantastic. Um, like I said, the booker of the show was Ric Flair. Uh, the head, he was the head booker. Like he had, you know, he had Bischoff there, of course, to, to you know, to kind of answer to, but his ideas and Bischoff, you know, was really behind Flair as the booker and Kevin Sullivan, the fine detail guy. And also I'm pretty sure Terry Taylor helped as well with that as well. Um, they had some dark matches before the pay-per-view and, um, there was a, a local deal in the Chicago market between, uh, two Chicago DJs, as uh, uh, you know, celebrities from the past, Danny body Ducci versus, uh, Christopher Knight, uh, you know, Peter Brady for the Brady bunch. They had a local deal there that, you know, I don't think it'd be funny if, w, if WWE Network uh, released that match or it'd be kind of funny to see. Um, I don't think I've ever seen any footage of it. They also had a dark match as well with Pat Tanaka and, and uh, I can't remember that, Hato, which was just Kato, which slash Paul Diamond, the uh, former Orient Express tag team. They looked the same, just mainly, mainly wore black. They do wear black and towards the end of their run in WWF. And of course, Paul Diamond, because he's a you know uh, Canadian, um, he wore the uh, um, the hood. Um, they wrestled Kevin Sullivan, the Evad Sullivan. Um, Evad Sullivan was uh, the former Equalizer, and he was uh, Kevin. He's he became, you know, his name's Dave Sullivan, but he had dyslexia, so he called him his name, his name was Evad. And he played Kevin Sullivan's kayfabe brother. Um, and he was uh, responsible for a lot of the cringy stuff in uh, 1994 with you know Evad being a, a Hulkamaniac and feuding with, uh, I think he's trying to do a George Amel Steel gimmick with him and versus Dallas Page and his love for the Diamond Doll Kimberly. And, 90, and like they had, I mean, I never forget, like they had a skit. And I think Dave Sullivan went a date with the Diamond Doll, and and then Diamond Doll's page ended up fighting him, and they started punching, and then they started doing the fake like punching sounds. Ugh, just was I one of the most embarrassing times as a wrestling fan, and there's a lot at that to that point. Uh, the commentators were Tony Schiavone and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Bobby Heenan came in the end of '93 when he was the, his contract ran out in the WWF. Uh, mean Gene Orkelin, another. You know, guy released by the WWF. Uh, he was did the uh, backstage interviews um, with, with with Jesse the Body Ventura, who was doing uh, kind of being phased out of the color commentary role. Which, you know, I like Jesse Body in um, the WWF, and I, I was I was excited when he came to WCW in 1992. But I don't know. I just think he just never had that. He could never catch that old magic. But Bobby Heenan did. Bobby Heenan, I thought was really good and always cracked me up always entertaining um and i thought he did a great job with siobhan here shivani you know i have a love hate with this guy um i enjoyed his earlier stuff 
Um, and I enjoyed his stuff when he, you know, at first it took me a while to get used to him again because, you know, Jim Ross, when he left in WWE 1993, that was a bummer because Jim Ross is my favorite all time play to play guy. But, you know, I thought Shawn did a good job. Um, it was later on with Nitro, you know, he just kind of got, I, I just say he stopped caring. And it was so out of control that it, it, it his, his lack of caring in the product just really came across the screen. Um, so let's dive into this pay per view. Spring Stampede, like I said, 1994. The opening match was Johnny B. Bad pinning Diamond Dallas Page in five minutes and 55 seconds with a top rope sunset flip, which I've seen a lot of people do a top rope sunset flip. You don't see that today very often, but Johnny B. Bad had the very best top rope sunset flip. He just, just coasted, just glide in the air with that. Um, Dallas Page at this time was about two years into the business. Uh, Johnny B. Bad was about four years into the business. Um, you know, DDP started really late. And he was, like I said, a manager for a long time. He was a good manager, though, very tall. You know, and he was managing, like, the Bad Company, which is, you know, who wrestled earlier, Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond as the AWA Tag Team Champions. You know, he just towered over, you know, especially with Tanaka there. He was, you know, a smaller guy. Um, but this match, you can see like, you know, DP's green, some rough moments. Um, he's still very thick. He, you know, he definitely trimmed down and, 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 but what's kind of cool about seeing this match, you know, it was, it was an okay opener. It was fine. It, it was there for one reason is to give Johnny bad a win because he is going to be moving up into feuding or challenging for the WWE United States ch- Championship. So he, you know, it's like a nice win on pay-per-view to, to give him to kind of continue his momentum f- upward. But what's kind of cool about this match was that, you know, in 1995, um, towards after the goofiness and that after Nitro started, DDP and Dallas Page would trade the, the WWE TV title. And they would do some, they were doing a lot of like, moves you haven't seen in WCW, like a lot of cool, innovative stuff, or, 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 DDP, or DDP and Johnny Bad were bringing stuff from they saw Japan and and bring it over here, you know, you know, so they really, I, I mean, looking back at those matches, they're I, kind, of, kind of interesting to see now, my eyes now, but like, you know, f- by the time I thought they were really good and they worked hard, so... This is kind of like a, a, a glimpse in the future. And it's not like they probably said, like, you know what? Johnny Bad and Dallas Page are going to be top, top guys. They probably thought they would just be on the card and in the middle and and, and and be productive. But, like, they really worked hard to move themselves up the card. Like, DDP, I know he's, you know, a lot of the taco. He was friends with Bishaw. That's how he got his push. But, you know, DDP, I... I always respected him because he always put the work in. And he really wanted to get good. And he got good. So... Um, Meltzer gave this match a star and a quarter. And I, I would say that's fair. That's the fair rating uh, of this one. And like I said, this was a perfectly booked match. It accomplished the goal, just getting Johnny Bad a win as he's going to move on to Slamboree to challenge Steve Austin for the WWE US title. Next match uh, was for the World television championship it was lord steven regal with sir william who's the former bill dundee who i believe bill dundee might also have been on the booking committee at that time um which would which probably why one of the reasons why 94 was pretty good because you know 
Dundee's, you know, one of the better bookers. Of course, 84 or, you know, Mid-South was a, was a tremendous year and one of the best years for any company in wrestling. Uh, this match was set up between uh, 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 Steven Regal and the, who's the champion versus Brian Pillman. This was set up in a match uh, with Regal and Pillman on TV. Was on the it was on the March twelfth edition of Worldwide. Pillman won the match by disqualification, and when Regal threw you know Pillman over the top, that old that old deal, and it'll, it'll show up again later. Sir William tried to attack Pillman after Pillman cut him off, and then you know Regal hit uh, Pillman with the with the Sir William's umbrella that he had at ringside, and then Powell driving the floor. So that's how we're, that's how we got to this match. Um, this was a really fun back and forth match. Uh, Regal came to into the match with his hamstring taped up, um, but he just still moved great. I'm sure he was he's gutting it out, but it looked so good. Um, he was just he just was amazing here. You almost forget how great this guy was. Because it's been a while since we've all seen him wrestle. It's been a while since I've seen him wrestle. And he just, the details of what he did. I love Lord Steven Regal. It definitely was one of the highlights of, you know, the darker times at 93. And then, um, you know, he always, even when he got heavy and on the drugs and stuff. And, and you know, he still put on entertaining matches. Um, there's a cool moment when Pillman went for a, uh, like a Thez Press or crossbody, but Regal caught him and delivered this nice overhead suplex or slam. It just looked really cool. Um, like most WWE TV matches, this this match went to a 15-minute time limit draw. So, eh, I kind of hoping for a finish, even if it was like Regal cheating to win, just something. Um, but I thought this match was really good. I gave it uh, three and a quarter stars. Meltzer gave it two and three quarter stars. Um. Yeah, that could see either way, but it was a really good match. Don't if you watch this paper, you don't skip this because it's uh, it's 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 really good. A uh, match number three, uh, WWE Tag Team Championship match, a street fight, the Nasty Boys, uh, the champions versus Cactus Jack and Max Payne. This is a wild and all-out brawl that was very rare for WWE pay for the time or even WWF pay for the time. These four men just look like they want to kill each other. Like that's what that's what we're missing. Like people have these brawls and they just, just you know, it was just, they set up stunts and they hit each other stuff with it. Like they were hitting each other with stuff, but it was like with vicious intent. You know, they wanted to cause bodily harm and injury. That's what it looked like to me. Uh, there was a silly part in this match where they fought toward the entranceway and. To the side of the entrance, right to the ramp, to the right of the ramp. If you're looking, if you're going towards up the ramp, and there was like this fake concession stand set up, right? And they you know, did some stuff, breaking tables, which again was you know wasn't something that happened in WCW at the time. Um, a moment I always rewound because it was it blew my mind. Jerry Sag tried to give Cactus Jack a pile driver on a table that which is on the ramp. And the table just collapses under weight. So you it's like slowly collapses. Like, boom. And it's just it just was crazy. And uh, I just always would be riding that because I just thought it was nutty. Uh catch tag takes that back schoolboy, a bump on the floor into concrete. And then Brian Nob just like takes a shovel, one of those little snow shovels. Actually it wasn't it was small, it was big, 
wide blade on it. And he just tosses it over towards Cactus Jack and it hits him. It was like that was freaking dangerous. Um, this match only went eight minutes fifty four seconds. It was you know not that long, but perfect pace. Like you don't want to go too long with these matches, and that's the problem with modern day wrestling today when they do these street fights or you know hardcore matches, whatever you want to call them. It's just they go too long. It's like these you want to be in and out, like quick action, quick with the violence, and just don't overstay your welcome. And then this match didn't. Uh, Meltzer gets match four and a half stars. Um, this is the highest match he rated on the on the pay-per-view. I gave it four stars. Um, but I think he went really high with it, higher than me, because it just for the time it was different and uh something that, you know, this was an ECW match that you know people didn't think was gonna be on a WCA pay-per-view. So Master of Four was the United States Championship match. It was Steve Austin, stunning Steve Austin at the time. He was the United States Champion. He defeated the Great Muda in 16 minutes and 20 seconds by disqualification. The old backdrop over the top rope. Um, Muda did this to uh, Austin. Austin charged at him at the end, and Muda just nonchalantly backdrops over the top rope, and that's they're out. You know, Muda wasn't going to do the job, and they're definitely not going to put the belt, U.S. belt on the great Muda at the time. So that was the compromise finish. But this was a really good match. Um, even though I wasn't a fan of the finish, um, this match built up slowly with Muda controlling Austin with the side headlock takedown. Beautiful side headlock takedowns. Uh, picture perfect. Um you know, eventually Austin takes over and tries to work on Muda's leg to set up the Hollywood and Vine, the 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 old Fuller leg lock, which is a leg lock, which is a move that just is rarely seen today, and you know someone should bring it back. Um, you know, it's what's old is new again, and I don't think anyone's used this in a very, very, very long time. So uh, Muda finally made his comeback, his traditional. Uh, trademark spots, power drive elbow, handspring elbow in the corner. And he hit, Muda put up Austin on the top rope and hit this awesome Frankensteiner off the top. And what made it look so awesome was, you know, the body language that Muda does, you know, he's always so like quick. He has this great body charisma when he does moves. Like his, his movements are, are just eye-catching. But the bump, that Steve Austin took, he just came out so fast at that corner and took this great bump, and he kind of bounced up almost to his feet and kind of went to the opposite uh, end of the ring, and it was just, just it looked wild. It, looked, it was in control, but it looked out of control, and that led towards the, the finish. So um, afterwards, they tried to give something to pacify the fans. Um, they feel cheated by this finish. They had Muda take out uh, Colonel Rob Parker, which is Steve Austin's manager. If I, if I, sorry, I forgot to mention that earlier. He did like a little dive out on onto him in Austin. And it's just, you know, people pop. People love Muda. He was so popular in WCW. And this was a, a really, a really, really good match. Uh, Meltzer gave it two and a three quarter stars. I didn't think this. That was, wow. Two and three quarter. I, I had it. At least three, three and a half, maybe three and a quarter. You know, in that range. Like it's definitely three. I know it's your your trying. He's only a quarter to start off, but like, no, nah, it should have been three in my opinion. Next matchup was uh, 
for the WCW International Championship. Sting defeated Rick Rude, who was a champion, to win the championship in 12 minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, this probably is the worst Sting and Rick Rude match on film. Yet the crowd was so hot for Sting, and you know they they took these guys as major stars, and they and they were at the time. Um, but this match was just so clunky. Even how what clunky it was, like I said, the crowd was really into it. They could do no wrong here. Uh, there seemed to be like some miscommunication issues with Sting, and and also a lot of timing issues between Sting and and Rude. Uh, toward the end of the match, Rick just suffered a bloody nose. I didn't go back to see where it happened. I, it might have been when he went for the tombstone on Sting, and Sting kind of just, I don't know, it was it was kind of out, out there. Um, Harley Race tried to interfere, interfere, but his, because he's managing Vader, but he, you know, he wanted a title shot for Vader, so he was starting to, you know, challenge Rude, and they're starting to go, Babyface with Rude and to have a nice little uh, few with Vader for the international title. Um, so Rude, Harley Race made a way down there. He's watching the match. He is a ref bump. He tries to interfere with the chair and the timing of the chair shot and all that just was was wasn't good. Fans still reacted when Sting won, and this was going to be like a quick little title change because. Rude Sting was going to come in as champion to New Japan as WCW International Champion and lose it back to Rick Rude, which he did on May 1st at the New Japan's uh, Dontaku event. Uh, but this was Rick Rude's last match. This is the match where Sting did a big dive over the top rope and the New Japan ring was elevated on a stage. And when Sting did the dive out and he came out so fast... Rude caught him, and when he went crashing down, his back hit the edge of that stage, and and he never wrestled again. And that was really so – I really liked Rude. I was a big Rude fan. I remember, you know, at the time, they didn't announce it for a while, you know, about this injury or anything, till the pay-per-view slamboree. And, you know, they shot an angle between Rude and Vader. And I was, like, really excited. That's, like, something fresh and new, right? And Slam restarts. They announce Rick Rude's injury, and they're stripping him of the title. They're going to give it to his opponent that night was Sting, um, and Sting didn't want that way, so he wanted to defend it. So he defended against Vader and end up beating Vader for the title. So S Lamborghini. This match got two stars, and honestly, I could have gone lower one just for the clunkiness. But you know, the fans were into it so i guess that 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 kind of helped out that ring match number six if you want to watch a fun single match brawl fight just no rules old school southern brawling check out bunkhouse buck versus dustin Rhodes. i love this match um bunkhouse buck pinned Dustin Rose in 14 minutes, 11 seconds. Buckhouse Buck is a former Jimmy Golden, um, longtime uh, Alabama territory, cousin of the Fullers, um, part of the stud stable, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. They were a really good tag team. I I used to love the stud stable. 
Uh, especially in like when they came down for world class, they had Brian Lee with them for a while. Jimmy Golden, I think, went back to Alabama, so Brian Lee kind of took a spot. I just, just, I love the the whole stud stable presentation. Um, and when you know, when Robert Fuller showed the WCW, I was like, oh, cool, Robert Fuller. But then he's like this Southern gentleman, you know, big cigars, big white hat, and. I'm like, why can't you just be Robert Fuller and be in a wrestler? You know, so I, it, it took me a while to kind of get used to him as Colonel Ron Parker, and I, I don't think I ever did. And then here comes Jimmy Golden as Bunkhouse Buck. I'm like, oh, why? Why is he this goofy guy? Like, why can't he be Jimmy Golden? And why can't he, Colonel Ron Parker be Robert Fuller again? Just be the stud stable. Uh, but I tell you, I freaking love Bunkhouse Buck. After a while, he just was. He come out, he had a great music. He come out and do like this funny like look on his face like you know we used like a crazy hillbilly from the south that just wants to fight and drink beer um i just totally got into his work you know i was like jimmy golden as jimmy golden but like i loved the the brawling buckhouse buck character he did and this was a really good ball two guys that just looked like they wanted to beat the piss out of each other and they're trying it it's 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 nowadays, especially the WWF too, which is really frustrating. You start pulling a bunch of chairs out from underneath. You got these damn kendo sticks. Um, AW, there'd be barbed wire, you know, boards underneath. It's just too much these days. Like this is just simple to the point. Two guys hate each other. They're having a bunkhouse. It's gonna be, it's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be wild. Dustin bleeds, blesses open, uh, which is funny because you know the following year that he would get fired for bleeding in that horrible what was that match in the back of a truck. <laughs> it's, it's just embarrassing stuff there, but it's still just fantastic. And Buck wins by hitting Rhodes with some brass knuckles. They're going to have a rematch. So their match at Slamry, the uh, bull rope match wasn't as good as this one. Meltzer gives this one four stars. And I agree. This definitely four stars. This match is awesome. Don't sleep on this match. Don't sleep on Buckhouse Buck. Um, so it definitely one to watch. One of the best, I think, brawls on a pay per view, in my opinion. Just really well done. Match number seven, Vader pinned the boss in nine minutes and two seconds. The boss is a former big boss man in WCW. Um, and he was doing a take off the boss man gimmick and. WC, you get a lot of heat for this, and and WWE, WWF at the time was not happy and and threatened to sue, but this was his the boss's last match as the boss. Now I said earlier you want to see a match between two dudes just want to fight each other, brawl. Just if you want to see two big men just slug it out, uh, watch Big Van Vader or Vader versus the Boss from this pay per view. These two super heavyweights just beat the hell out of each other. One point in the match, Vader was standing on the on the second rope, looking to do a power bomb, uh, do a Vader bomb. Excuse me. <laughs> I don't know what the hell happened here. Boss went and kind of crushed him a little bit, and I think he was going for a reverse slam while Vader was on the second rope. And I think Vader was supposed to like do a little moonsault to help him out, and then. You know, he was going to land on his belly. Vader was. That, was. that was the idea. But he just, Vader just takes this nasty, doesn't rotate enough and, and 
boss man just couldn't get him all the way over and Bear takes this freaking nasty bump on the shoulder. I don't know how he continued to this match after that one, but you know, Vader's a tough son of a gun. And again, just just they're just throwing like these great each guy has great punch and they're just potatoing each other. It's crowds going nuts. This is like a great heavyweight fight, right? Um Vader hits the Hits the Vader bomb, Vader bomb, but he went, goes to the top and hits the moonsault and connects, which he he would rarely do. Um, he's only I think connected a few times in WCW. He mostly would just do it and miss, and the Vayface would make his comeback. But here he hit it one, two, three. Um, after the match, Vader's manager Harley Race tries to handcuff the boss, but the boss. You know, but the boss attacks Vader, Ray's, and the referee with the nightstick. Um, the commissioner, Nick Bockwinkle, took away the nightstick, stripped him of the name, the boss. So that was the way they kind of wrote out, wrote off the boss gimmick. Um, so they got one pay-per-view match out of it. So that was kind of cool. You know, they were able to finish it up on air. So just one day just showing up with him as, you know, Ray Trailer. Um, but with the gimmick that followed, the boss, wasn't any better. He was the the guardian angel, which is the the the, the New York, I guess, vigilante uh, group that would kind of police the streets of New York, and so they did these vignettes of him like joining the guardian angels, and I hated that man. I just like give me Big Bubba, and they finally did, and and um and uh, in '95 when he was went heel and started, you know, has a good match with Sting and stuff, but um. I mean, just why can't you just be Ray Trailer? What the hell? You know, like, then he can be, you know, or just be Big Bubba Rogers. That's his name. He's Bubba Rogers. And then he can go, when he turns heel, he can go back to the suspenders and the clothes or, you know, whatever. He could be Bayface Big Bubba Rogers, you know. So this match got, uh, excuse me, three and a half. And I'm like, maybe because it was such a rough looking match, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. It was very physical and brutal. But I would have gone. I would have gone four with this. You know, it's different than Buckhouse, Buck and Dusty Rose, but equally as good in my opinion. It was, I mean, it was something, or man, it was it was something you didn't also didn't see normally on pay per view, and just two guys just really just going at it. You know, uh, the next match, the main event, was. For the WCW Championship, and that was Rick Flood champion, and Rick Steamboat battling to a draw, and it's gonna sound funny, a draw in 32 minutes and 19 seconds. It was a draw, they could have draw because there was a double pin. Now, it was uh, Steamboat had the double chicken wing on. Um, he submitted Rick Flair in their famous match in April of 1989 at the Clash. We won one of the falls, the two out of three falls match with. The double chicken wing. Um, so, you know, Steamboat drops back. His shoulders are down. Flair's shoulders are down. One, two, three. Title is held up. Um, and they had a rematch that took place on... It was taped on April 21st at center stage. And Rick Flair regained the title. Uh, the match didn't air to May 14th. Um Ric Flair would go on to unify the WWE international title with the WWE world title at the Clash on June 23rd. Um, 
and I always had a always try, had a memory that though I liked this match, I remember being like it definitely was a step below their '89 series. They're both older, a little older, um, but in rewatching it, it's a lot better than I remember. I remember liking the rematch on WWE Saturday Night better, and I did rewatch that match as well, and it was really good as well but i this was a lot better than what i remember it it just great storytelling you know they they just it's slow a little slower pace but but they built to everything they you know they always kept you interested you know even "Quote unquote," when they would grab a hold, and people called this oh, a rest hold. No, they 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 grab a hold and and they work it. You know, steamboat with that selling, just anything holds he's in. He just he just sells it. The punishment of it. He just he's a, the master of selling and registering. And you know, Flair, Steamboat, just they just click. They just click. I I look. I could watch those two just chop the shit at each other like. The whole match and it'll never get boring because they do it the right way. Like now, you see today in modern wrestling, it's just everyone goes in the middle of the ring, they stop and they put out their chest, and one guy hits the other guy, the other guy then puts his chest out, and the other guy hits him. It's just, it's just, just stupid because why would anyone let anyone just hit him, right? With Steamboat and Flair, like you know, Steamboat Flair would get him in the corner, back him up. Deliver that chop, bam! Steamboat would sell it. Oh, he turns back, but then fire back with his chop. So they would exchange chops in the middle, but they're always like moving with it, right? They're always selling. Like after they got hit, it was just sitting there, no selling. I just, I'm just tired of it. It happens every match. People started, you know, because of watching it from, you know, the resurgence of. New Japan, seeing what you know Ishii did, and everyone's copying that shit, and it's just boring. It just honestly just kills your momentum of the match. Really, it really does. Um, Meltzer gets match four and a quarter star. Um, it, it's definitely different than the street fight with the Nasty Boys and Cactus Jack and Max Payne, but in its own way. Like it's equally a four and a half star match, maybe a little more. It was, it's, it was really, really, really good, and I just can't believe it's been a while since I watched this match. I can't believe I always had that. Like, it was okay. It was fucking great. This match was so. Um, so I definitely recommend this. Not only this whole pay per view, but also go back after you're watching this pay per view. Go check out the rematch between Flair and Steamboat from Center Stage. Um. That's, like I said, equally as great. Still blew my mind that they did a WCW World Title change in center stage, right? Um, at the time, they didn't really, I don't think they really explained that the title was held up. I think I just remember seeing, I used to love looking at title histories and the PWIs and stuff. And I'm like, wait, it was a, it was held up? I, I, I got to rewatch those 1994 WCWs. I wish the network would post them, uh, especially that first uh, 10 months of w I would love to go back and watch those shows in uh, in order and watch this match because the match is on YouTube. It's an older, uh, like a third or third or fourth generation dub. And it just, it, you can, it's watchable, but 
I just want to see it clearly. Like on you know, network, of course, they had this pay per view, and it's clear as day, uh, and it looked great. So I highly recommend this if you're a younger fan out there who never seen this pay per view and um, check it out. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I think it's definitely going to work. What you know, you might be into now. It, it fits this show fits in today's modern wrestling, you know, but just better, honestly. Like it's you know, the, you know there's there's two different ways on this show to do a violent brawl, right? There's the tons of plunder in the tag team match, and then there's the uh, uh, just just a barroom fight with uh, two guys with the with the with a the vendetta, there's a big super heavyweight battle with guys just trying to cage each other skull in. There's classic wrestling with Steve Austin and great and versus great Muda, Pillman, Regal, and then of course Ric Flair, Rick Steamboat. How can you go wrong there? So thanks for take thanks for listening to the Take It Home podcast. I appreciate it. Um, I hope you guys like this look back in time at a older pay per view. I'm gonna do this from time to time. Though I'm gonna get back into. Um, you know, I don't think much is, you know, this last like month of May and and even early June now coming on this weekend, uh, just a lot of stuff, family events going on. So I wanted to pre-tape this one early, get it out there for the first weekend of June. But I think going forward, shouldn't have any more delays unless something does come up. But definitely get back covering more independence, going to go back to the international scene and the part of the UK scene, the European scene. Um, check out some of that those stuff on the network. Um you know, any, any recommendations that you guys have, um, any shows that are out there, full, complete shows that you want me to review, um, let me know uh, or or give me a match that you saw on YouTube or independent wrestling TV or something that you want to hear my opinion on. Maybe you thought it was great, but then you want to know my opinion. I, I, love, I love recommendations, so please let me know. Um, I would love to review those, so. Once again, thanks for joining me. Follow me on Twitter at LaRocketJL. Thank you for liking and sharing. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, Everyone have a great weekend and be safe. Take care.